The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for joining us um, for the uh, Trinity Centre for Asian Studies webinar today. Um, we're delighted to have the support of um, the Trinity Long Room Hub um, uh, Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And in particular, today we have the director of the hub, Professor Eve Patton. Um, and she asked me to extend a particularly warm welcome on her behalf and the hub's behalf to our speaker today. Um, I'm Isabella Jackson. I'm the Associate Director of the Centre for Asian Studies, and it's a real pleasure to be inviting um, Dr. Rahul Mishra, um, who's joining us today from uh, Kuala Lumpur. Um, Dr. Mishra is Director, uh, is um, Associate Professor at um, the um, University of Malaya, um, he, where he is Senior Lecturer at the Asia Europe Institute. Um, he's previously worked as a consultant with the Foreign Service Institute at the Ministry of External Affairs in the Government of India, where he coordinated training modules for visiting foreign diplomats and lectured on Asian security and Southeast Asian issues. Um, he's got a very impressive CV. He also worked with the Indian Council of World Affairs. Um, he was responsible there for Southeast Asia and Korean um, divisions. He coordinated a core group on Myanmar, um, comprising eminent scholars, retired diplomats and military officers and analyzed India-Myanmar um, boundary relations. Um, so he has a longstanding expertise in this region. Um, he's been affiliated with Nanyang Technological University and the National University of Singapore. He's been a recipient of the Asia Fellowship of the East-West Center in Washington, DC and uh, Korean and Australian government fellowships. Dr. Mishra specializes on political security affairs of the Southeast Asian region and major power politics in Asia. He has a great many publications, far too many for, for me to name, but uh, a couple of the latest uh, are India's Eastward Engagement from Antiquity to um, Act East Policy, um, which he uh, co-authored with S.D. Mooney and was published last year. And this year, um, Asia and Europe in the 21st century, new anxieties, new concerns. And not only does he um, publish extensively in academic um, settings, he also writes weekly columns for uh, Deutsche Welle. He's written op-eds for media outlets around the world, uh, such as the Japan Times and the Financial Times. Um, he's appeared on news media um, such as the BBC, uh, China Central Television and several Indian news channels. Um, so we really are delighted to join um, to be joined by you, um, Dr. Mishra. Um, but today um, you'll be speaking um, to the subject a ticking bomb, Myanmar's Rohingya crisis. Um, after the presentation, Dr. Mishra has kindly said he'll take questions, and you can put any questions you may have into the Q and A box um, on your Zoom screen. So with no further ado, I will hand over to Dr. Mishra. Thank you, Dr. Jackson, uh, for that kind introduction. Uh, very uh, good evening from Kuala Lumpur, uh, good afternoon, rather, uh, 
to you and all the attendees to this webinar, those who are joining from Dublin. Uh, I'm delighted to share my thoughts this afternoon on a topic that is not only academically important, but also demands more attention, much more attention of the international community than it has got so far. Now, as you can see on the screen, the topic of my talk this afternoon is uh, titled The Ticking Bomb, Myanmar's Rohingya Crisis. Uh, now, some questions would naturally cross your mind, would have crossed your mind if you had uh, taken a look at the, uh, uh, the abstract and title of this uh, talk. For instance, how severe is this Rohingya crisis? Is it affecting Myanmar and its neighboring countries in that big a way that you call it a, a ticking bomb? Uh, I will try and answer these and other questions in the next half an hour or so. Uh, but first, let me explain why I thought that the ongoing crisis in Myanmar could perhaps be termed a time bomb. I think it is because the ongoing atrocities against Myanmar, against Rohingyas in Myanmar, are gradually turning into a humanitarian crisis for neighboring countries also. Till recently, it was confined within the Myanmar boundaries and the, uh, uh, the international community, that is, have been very concerned about what was happening in uh, inside Myanmar. But now this crisis has crossed the border, turned into a humanitarian crisis. The crisis migration process has taken, uh, is taking place. And what is more worrisome is that uh, some countries are trying to provide weapons, et cetera, to some radical Rohingya groups. And if these newly radicalized Rohingya groups retaliate, then uh, that would give the Myanmar Armed Forces or the Tatmadaw, as they're officially called, uh, that would give Tatmadaw an opportunity to engage a vast section of Rohingya in an armed conflict in the name of counterinsurgency. So in that context, it is clear that the varying nature of factors and outcomes that make uh, the Rohingya crisis totally unmanageable. And if we do not address these uh, uh, factors in these uh, issues at, at this moment, this could actually lead to a regional crisis. So what I propose to do in the next 35, 40 minutes is uh, share my thoughts with you on the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, how it has uh, it is affecting uh, neighboring countries of Southeast Asia and South Asia, the ASEAN region and ASEAN as a regional grouping as well, of which Myanmar is a part. Uh, I will start with a broad overview of Myanmar, a little bit of history, including the recent democratic transition, the ethnic landscape of the Myanmar society, and also the steps taken to bring about a nationwide ceasefire and ethnic reconciliation. Uh, so I'll uh, start with a broad overview of uh, Myanmar, a little bit of uh, uh, history, including recent uh, uh, democratic transition, the ethnic landscape of the Myanmar society, and also the steps that have uh, uh, that have been taken uh, to bring about a nationwide ceasefire and uh, ethnic reconciliation. Then some details about the Rohingya community and how they became stateless people inside their own country. The, uh, the military-led atrocities against these people and the resultant crisis migration also, for more clarity, I'd briefly talk about the concept of crisis migration and the ways in which in which it has uh, uh, led to uh, the Rohingya crisis. 
Now, moving on, I'll also talk about the Rohingya genocide, what has happened so far, followed by an assessment of the negative developments, uh, that is, uh, well, establishment of the Arakan army is one. Uh, next, I'll focus on global and regional responses to the Rohingya crisis. Uh, that would be followed by my assessment of uh, the ongoing crisis and whether and to what extent ASEAN has dealt with uh, this challenge and that uh, would be followed by my concluding observations and I uh, of course I look forward to your questions and comments uh, later. Now I'm sure that all of us are familiar with the history, geography and uh, culture of Myanmar but this is to help you with a recap of what has happened over past 70 years in, in modern independent Myanmar. Uh, well for a large part of modern history, independent history of Myanmar, it has been a pariah state. It has been one of the least developed countries in the region, uh, specifically for the past 25 years. It is also, according to some UN data, it is the poorest in the mainland Southeast Asia. Uh, for decades, particularly since 1962, Myanmar remained in isolation and a state of complete attacky. Some argue that today, especially after the democratic transition, Myanmar is no longer a pariah state. The ASEAN experts would say that, look, with the Thai initiative in 1992, uh, the idea of constructive engagement, trying to bring Myanmar into the ASEAN uh, mechanism and help them with democratization has actually worked and Myanmar is no longer a, a pariah state. It is uh, at the mainstream of Southeast Asian regionalism. But then is democracy just a form of governance or is democracy a virtue where everybody matters, where the, you have equal voting rights and equal, uh, uh, equal status uh, given to everybody? Is democracy uh, just for the rulers or is it for the people, by the people, of the people uh, kind of uh, idea? So I think in that context, uh, we still uh, have a lot of scope to debate whether uh, Myanmar really is a, a, a democratic country or not. But the fact remains that uh, thanks to General Tien Sen, political reforms took place in Myanmar. Uh, and with the, in 2010, 2015, uh, the elections were held. And with that election, 2015 election, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and her party, National League for Democracy, secured a landslide victory. The electoral victory was repeated again in uh, 2020, 8th of November, 2020. And NLD has secured majority in both the houses. If you look at this slide, it would give uh, you a very clear idea that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy has secured majority in uh, both the upper and the lower house. So far as the ethnic landscape of Myanmar is concerned, uh, it is very clear that it's an ethnically rich and diverse country. There are 135 officially recognized ethnic groups, uh, but unfortunately Rohingya are not included in that list. Therefore they are stateless. Uh, some call it, uh, for instance, the BBC called them the most persecuted minority and UN also has uh, uh, accepted that uh, uh, assessment. Uh, 
to deal with a multi uh, multi ethnic society Banglong conference was uh, launched uh, or the Banglong agreement was started in 1947 by uh, Aung San Aung San Suu Kyi's father and also the father of modern Burma uh, his idea was that a nationwide ethnic reconciliation should be brought about and all minorities should be made part of Myanmar, uh, Burma at that time, Burman, uh, Burma mainstream. Uh, things could not materialize and Aung San was uh, assassinated, uh, but his daughter, who is though not a president, neither she is a president or a prime minister, but uh, she's, she's the state councillor because she got married to a, a British. She uh, cannot, under the provisions of constitution, she cannot get any high uh, government position in Myanmar. And that has uh, been a major challenge uh, for her personally and uh, in terms of her own political career. Uh, she has launched the 21st century Panglong uh, Conference and Panglong Agreement. And nothing is uh, really, uh, nothing substantial has been achieved so far, but uh, she's definitely working in that direction. Uh, one major challenge before Myanmar as a multiracial country is the rising Bamar nationalism and majoritarianism. It has been argued that Bama ethnic dominance uh, transposed to the political sphere leads to a very simplistic motto that since Myanmar is a democracy now, so only number of votes count. And uh, if you have numbers with you, there is no need to worry about the minorities. And uh, as you showed in um, slides later, uh, the Burma community, the Theravada Buddhist Burmese uh, community uh, have a very clear majority in terms of number. They are, they are roughly 68% of the total population. So they don't have to worry about the minorities. And that is something that's been reflected in overall state of politics in Myanmar. This slide uh, gives us a, a, a sort of key features of how Myanmar looks like as a multiracial country. Um, now, uh, coming to Burma nationalism and Burma majoritarianism, uh, Burma Buddhist majoritarianism, I think really the poster boy, the, the key figure in, uh, in that context is uh, uh, Monk Virathu, who has appeared, uh, as you can see on this slide, appeared on the Time magazine cover. And uh, to appear on the Time magazine cover, I think you have to really do something that attracts uh, world's attention for good or bad reasons. Uh, he has not only appeared on the Times, he has also been equated with, uh, with uh, Bin Laden. Arab News, for example, has termed him as, uh, as a Buddhist Bin Laden. A number of countries have blocked him, uh, blocked him, and he's been denied entry or visa. Uh, so these actions on part of uh, international community or neighboring countries uh, elsewhere in the world has happened because Piratu has been very actively, aggressively propagating this idea that minorities should uh, live like second-class citizen in Myanmar and modern Myanmar should be a Burmese, Buddhist, Bamar, uh, Myanmar. It should be a, a homeland for Burmese uh, Theravada Buddhist people. And this idea 
is of course very vicious and very uh, toxic, but it has actually uh, worked in favor of uh, uh, the majority community. They are uh, they are very united, and this is not happening for the first time. Even before independence, between um, uh, in the uh, during the Second World War, similar things had happened with the with the Indian community, community the Chetias, for example. And uh, millions of people, millions of Indians who were settled there for centuries had to leave the country. Uh, the British government did not do anything uh, to protect those people or their rights. And they were um, uh, totally illegally, they were, they were forced back to India and their um, property and land, everything was confiscated. Now, these, uh, these are some pictures that would give you uh, uh, sort of impression as to how ethnically diverse is Myanmar and at the same time, how fragile it is, especially under current circumstances. So this one tells you that uh, it's not just the Bamar, but Shan, Karen, Rakhine, Kachin, Shin, Karani, Mon, Wo, Kokang, or other major, other major ethnic groups. And some of these uh, ethnic groups are very assertive and aggressive, very territorial about their, uh, their identity. Uh, this is another picture that gives you a sort of impression of ethnic groups, how they are placed within the country. Uh, this I thought was much better. Uh, in terms of uh, share, percentage share of ethnic groups in Burma, it's very clear that Burmese are roughly 68% followed by Shan, another minority community, which is uh, roughly 9%. Uh, Kayin are 7% and uh, rest of the groups are less than 5% in terms of their total percentage share in total uh, population of Myanmar. If you look at it from the religion uh, point of view, as, as in religion profiling, Theravada Buddhism is uh, uh, followed by more than 85% people, 87.4%. Christianity comes the second, uh, and all other religions are actually less than 10%. Now, in such an ethnically diverse country, it is common to have tensions amongst the communities, uh, as can be seen here. I don't know if you can see the picture clearly, but uh, due to the Burmese domination, things have been difficult for other communities. And to resolve these tensions, a nationwide ceasefire agreement was proposed, as I mentioned earlier. And this picture tells us how many rebel groups have already signed the NCA, the Nationwide Ceasefire Agreement, and uh, which groups are still left out. It is very interesting that two of the most aggressive minority uh, rebel groups, ethnic groups, the Kachin Independence Army, which is uh, based in the Kachin area along China-Myanmar boundary, and the United Boa State Army, uh, out of this agreement. And unless these two uh, groups sign the NCA, I don't think uh, there can be any hope of a lasting peace inside, the, in, inside Myanmar. Now, so who are the Rohingya people and uh, uh, or the Rohingya, if you will? Well, it's a group of people that has been historically concentrated in the Arakan or the Rakhine province of Myanmar. These people are also called, it's a, it's a rather racist slur, calling them Kalar or Bengali by uh, uh, the Burmese, majority Burmese people. 
majority of Rohingya are Muslims, and uh, uh, because in the, those in from the Rakhine province, other minorities are also there are also Hindus and other types of Muslims as well. Uh, those who follow a sort of mix of uh, religions, uh, hybrid religion, etc. So Rohingya community uh, is majority in the Arakan or Rakhine province. Uh, they are Muslims. They have been deprived of citizenship under the 1982 citizenship law. They have no freedom of movement. They have no access to state education, uh, no access to government subsidies and jobs. If you look at their overall population before 2015, there were roughly 1 million to 1.3 million Rohingyas in Myanmar. And now that number has shrunk considerably. It is believed that more than 80% of Rohingyas have fled the country already. Uh, and that it can be corroborated with the fact that there are 3.5 million Rohingya Muslims across the world, uh, and they are mostly dispersed because, of course, they are refugees. So. Um, the worst part of the uh, about the worst uh, aspect about these Rohingya community and the, and how the Myanmar government has been treating them is that these people are facing persecution at the hands of the Myanmar armed forces and the local government. And Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel uh, Peace Prize uh, winner. Uh, an icon of democracy uh, has not done enough. And uh, her statements in this regard would tell you how uh, she looks at the Rohingya crisis and how she thinks that it is, it is just, a, uh, just a bunch of uninformed opinions, rumors, and uh, countries and people who are against Myanmar has been running this propaganda. So we'll come to that later. But I thought this fancy picture would uh, give you a, a sort of interesting way of looking at the issue. Um, the crux of the matter here really is that human rights violations, uh, and since the Rohingya minorities get nothing from the provincial and, and central governments, and their lives are also in danger, uh, these people have been leaving Myanmar to settle down somewhere else. And there is no verifiable data. Uh, and we keep getting different figures from uh, different places. But it is very clear that these stateless refugees are mostly based now in, in Bangladesh, Malaysia, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, uh, India, Indonesia, and Thailand also, except uh, Rohingya refugees. But there have been uh, problems. If we look at the, uh, this map, it is very clear that uh, the, uh, that Myanmar shares boundary with Thailand, Laos, Bangladesh, India, and China. I haven't found any reports of Rohingya leaving for China, uh, and uh, there are a number of factors for that. Uh, but uh, even Laos, and there have been not many uh, reports, uh, of course, because of the fact that Laos falls on the other side of Myanmar, um, and it is very difficult for uh, Rohingya minorities to uh, to cross over to other side of the uh, uh, country without facing uh, the Tatmadaw officials. So India, Bangladesh, and Thailand are the countries in the immediate neighborhood 
where these people are trying to take refuge. In this picture, you can see how um, that Rohingya people are taking the maritime route also. Indonesia and Malaysia, for instance, have been the major centers uh, for these refugees. If you look at the current state of Rohingya community in Myanmar, it is uh, clear that, uh, 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 that Malaysia has been one of uh, the most important centers. And Malaysia has also been vocal at the ASEAN platform. Malaysia has been very vocal in, in uh, um, in really criticizing uh, the Myanmar government and also highlighting uh, the episodes of human rights violations that are happening within the country. So with all this, I think it is very clear that uh, Rohingya are fleeing the country. They are, uh, they are um, leaving the country for better, not just for better options, but also for their own survival. And this process can be termed as crisis migration. So in that context, I think it is important to see as to what is uh, crisis migration and how do we define it? So uh, I, I think it is better if we take a quick look at the definition uh, of crisis migration as well. Um, Professor Jean uh, McAdam and her colleagues came up with this concise definition of crisis migration in a journal in 2014. They also came up with uh, several case studies from Asia but surprisingly, their 2014 study did not include Myanmar. And to be fair, uh, at that time, the ethnic situation in Myanmar was also not uh, that bad. Uh, nevertheless, I believe that the concept of crisis migration and its fundamental aspects are best suited to explain uh, the plight of Rohingya people in Myanmar. Uh, we can define crisis migration as a voluntary or forced movement that is triggered by a humanitarian crisis and spurs um, migration. And it depends on voluntary and uh, uh, it depends on uh, two important factors. First is the resources and capacities of those who move. And second, the ability of the state into which or within which they move to respond to their plight. I think here it is also important to note that migration is commonly linked with natural disasters and the impact of climate change, et cetera. Uh, migration in itself is a normal rational response to natural disasters. Uh, it is neither always voluntary nor abnormal. Uh, you could argue that, well, if uh, a natural disaster like tsunami or typhoon or hurricane, depending on which, which part of the world you are in, hits a country, it can lead to a crisis. Yes, that's correct, it is a crisis. But perhaps such an event would also lead to short uh, migration also. But can we compare hurricane situation in the US or typhoon in Japan with tsunami or floods in, uh, let's say in Bangladesh? No, we cannot. Because for a migration to be termed as crisis migration, certain other key elements should also be present. Uh, what uh, Jane McAdam and others have tried to highlight here is that natural disasters and other disasters are commonplace in some environments. They will not manifest its, uh, themselves as crisis unless certain variables are also present. And these include poverty, overcrowding, environmental fragility, development practices, political instability, inter internal conflicts, 
Uh, and thus, what may be weathered by one community or individual may constitute a crisis for another. So uh, therefore, in a sense, crisis migration is understood as a response to complex combination of social, political, economic, environmental factors, which may be triggered by an extreme event, but not caused by it. It implies acute pressure on individuals or com communities that move rather necessarily, indicating the presence of an extreme or sudden event. Now let us quickly look at the factors responsible uh, for crisis migration. I think it is uh, very clear that evidence of real or perceived threat to life, uh, such as civil war, ethnic cleansing, communal uh, violence, uh, threats to physical safety, health or basic subsistence, uh, or anticipation of such harms, uh, political marginalization, et cetera, uh, can be included in this, but not everybody is able to get out and some stay put in such situations, in, in such places. And uh, that leads to uh, a major challenge. Now, scholars argue that there are four ways in which humanitarian crisis affects movement. First is displacement, which simply is um, uh, those who are directly affected or directly threatened by a humanitarian crisis. This category is intended to encompass those who are compelled to move by the events beyond their direct control. And the displacement may be temporary or it may become protracted. Trapped population is the second uh, way uh, in which what happens basically is that these people are directly affected or threatened by a humanitarian crisis. That is those who are in the same situation as persons in the first category, uh, but do not or cannot move due to physical, financial security or other reasons that impede their ability to move. The third category is termed as the anticipatory movement. This is a pretty uh, uh, good as in it encompasses those who, who can move or who move be, because they anticipate future threats to their life, physical safety, health, or subsistence. This category uh, includes, but is not limited to those who believe in areas that are predicted to experience intensified and recurrent climate hazards or uh, other results of climate change. The fourth category is uh, mixed migration. It involves all uh, the other types uh, that is category one, two, or three. And uh, mixed migration is something that we, uh, we see in other parts of the world as well. Now, so far as the Rohingya movement is concerned, we can see that all four ways of movement in the Rohingya crisis, that is displacement, uh, trapped population, anticipatory movement, and also mixed uh, movement can be seen in the case of Rohingya. Unfortunately, most of these people get trapped in uh, human trafficking networks. So they, uh, whenever there is anticipatory movement, they basically try and get out of this situation. And uh, especially in the maritime route, they get stuck in uh, human trafficking networks and also organ harvesting networks. So basically the persecution of Rohingya community has led to waves of exodus. The largest wave took place in 2017 um, and it was also the largest human exodus in Asia since the Vietnam War. 
this whole crisis unfolded in two phases. First started uh, in October 2016 and lasted uh, till January 2017. It was actually in the aftermath of the military crackdown in 2016, uh, uh, which was termed by the United Nations as possible crimes against humanity. Uh, the international human rights groups, such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and others, uh, neighboring countries in Southeast Asia uh, and also Bangladesh and, and the US have raised concerns on what has been happening in uh, Myanmar. The second phase started uh, since uh, August 2017 and it has uh, been going on. Uh, September 2017, uh, 2017, a seven member panel of permanent people's tribunal found that uh, Myanmar uh, military and the government were guilty of genocide against the Rohingya and also the Kachin uh, minorities. Uh, later in November 2017, Bangladesh and Myanmar signed a deal to facilitate the return of Rohingya to Bangladesh. So basically, Bangladesh accepting that some of these people were Bangladeshi citizens. Uh, but uh, that agreement could not materialize. Uh, and that uh, also uh, really was a big blow to a regional solution to this uh, humanitarian crisis. In August 2018, the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Commissioner declared that uh, based on the inquiries that were conducted in uh, 2017 between the months of August and September, uh, show it very clearly that Tatmada officers are guilty of genocide and therefore the trial should go on. And it, in December 2019, the International Court of Justice uh, took up the case after Gambia filed a case against Myanmar. And uh, subsequently in January 2020, International Court of Justice ordered Myanmar to stop the genocide against Rohingya people. Uh, this is uh, just a picture of Rohingya Muslims captured by the Tatmadaw. According to some reports, these people were killed hours after this picture was taken. But this, uh, of course, is not verified, so we can only speculate. Now, international agencies have found that the Myanmar government is actually involved in systematically eliminating the Rohingya community. For instance, according to a report by the Amnesty International, Myanmar government is starving out Rohingya in the Rakhine province. And this report was uh, uh, released in, uh, um, in 2018. These are some of the pictures that tell you how and where uh, Rohingya have been fleeing. This is a Rohingya list of Rohingya refugee sites in Bangladesh. If you look at Rohingya Exodus, it is very clear that uh, in 2017 alone, 300,000 Rohingya people left the, uh, left the country. Um, now, I think that uh, one cannot really narrate five years of Rohingya history in just half an hour. So I thought I would play two short clips so that you get a sense of what is happening uh, with the Rohingyas. Um, to do that, I think I have to, uh, Dr. Jackson, I think I have to st uh, share my screen again. Would that be okay? Yes, of course.
All right, this should work. Oops. authorities to suspend military action, end the violence, uphold the rule of law, and recognize the right of return of all those who had to leave the country. They cross the border of Myanmar, where the state military has launched a violent offensive against an ethnic minority group, the Rohingya. The UN reported that since August 2017, about 400,000 Rohingya men, women and children have fled their homes in Myanmar's Rakhine state. Reports claim that the military has been killing and raping the Rohingya and has set their villages on fire. Satellite imagery showing burned villages confirms those reports. Because Myanmar has refused access to human rights investigators, the current situation cannot yet be fully uh, assessed, but the situation remains or seems a textbook, uh, textbook example of ethnic cleansing. The term ethnic cleansing has been reserved for some of the worst atrocities in history. The UN defines it as a purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violent and terror-inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from certain geographic areas. What makes Myanmar a textbook example is that the military has been launching attacks on the Rohingya, a Muslim minority in a majority Buddhist country. Violent tactics have forced tens of thousands of Rohingya to flee their homes. While many fled to Malaysia and Thailand, most ended up in Bangladesh. The recent wave of violence is the latest in a pattern of discrimination that started over 50 years ago. In 1962, Myanmar, then called Burma, was taken over by the military in a coup. 
they got rid of the country's constitution and created a military junta. Like many dictatorships, they promoted fierce nationalism based on the country's Buddhist identity. And when they needed a common enemy to help unite the population, the Rohingya were singled out as a threat. Tensions between the Burmese Buddhist population and the Rohingya go back to the Second World War, when each group supported opposing sides. The Rohingya sided with the British colonialists, who ruled the country. And the Buddhists mostly sided with the Japanese invaders, hoping they'd help end the British rule after the war. But even in modern Myanmar, the Rohingya minority continue to be an easy target. Although their lineage can be traced back to 15th century Burma, the government has been forcing them out, claiming they're illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. It started in 1978, after a massive crackdown called Operation Dragon King forced about 200,000 Rohingya to flee to Bangladesh. The military reportedly used violence and rape to drive them out. About 170,000 Rohingya reportedly returned to Burma. Then in 1982, the government passed the Citizenship Act, recognizing 135 ethnic groups. The Rohingya, with a population of about 1 million, were not on the list and became a stateless people. In 1991, Myanmar's military launched another campaign, literally called Operation Clean and Beautiful Nation. This time, about 250,000 Rohingya fled to Bangladesh. Tensions continued to build against the Rohingya in the 2000s. Violence broke out in 2012, when four Muslim men were accused of raping and killing a Buddhist woman in Rakhine. Buddhist nationalists backed by security forces attacked Muslim neighborhoods, burned homes, displacing tens of thousands of Rohingya again. Human Rights Watch deemed it an ethnic cleansing campaign. By this point, the Rohingya were persecuted, disenfranchised, and stateless. In 2016, a Rohingya militant group, the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, emerged and coordinated small-scale attacks on border police stations. An attack on August 25, 2017, left 12 police officers dead and sparked the current crisis against Rohingya civilians. A brutal retaliation by the state security forces has led to about 400 deaths and the mass exodus of about 400,000 Rohingya to Bangladesh. Since the August attack, 210 villages have been burned to the ground. The violent campaign has triggered the fastest-growing humanitarian crisis in recent years. But Myanmar's de facto leader and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Aung San Suu Kyi, has barely acknowledged the attacks. More than 50% of the villages of Muslims are intact. They are as they were before the attacks took place. When she says that, you know, 50% of the uh, Muslim villages are still present in Rakhine State, well, I mean, what are we talking about? 50% are gone, 50% are burnt out. You know, in any school I went to, 50% is a failing grade. Recent reports claim that the military has planted landmines along the Bangladesh border to prevent the Rohingya from returning. Myanmar's government has systematically driven the Rohingya out of the country. Over the last five decades, it has stripped their citizenship, terrorized them, and destroyed their homes. And now, it wants to keep them from ever coming back. All right, so as we've seen in, the, uh, in that clip, the uh, Myanmar government has uh, been accusing these new uh, rebel groups, or uh, as they call it, the terrorist groups, uh, Arakan, uh, Salvation Army, and other uh, Arakan-based rebel groups, which are basically supporters of Rohingya, 
that has been used as a reason to uh, drive out the uh, Rohingya minorities, millions of people, and uh, so many other things that have happened. Uh, if we look at the Arakan Army or Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, uh, this has led to violence and destabilization, the conflict that is between the Tatnadao and these rebel groups. Uh, Arakan Army has emerged as an ally of the Rohingyas, at least they call themselves an ally of Rohingyas. Uh, their ultimate goal is to establish political uh, autonomy for the Arakan or Rakhine region, as well as peace and reconciliation with all other co-inhabitants of Rakhine. Well, this has not been uh, really true because uh, there were report reports that within the Rakhine region, these uh, ARSA and other uh, rebel groups were involved in killing other minority groups, uh, basically the, the Arakan Hindus. So there are problems uh, even within the minorities in the Arakan region, and this actually leads to further complication of the problem. Uh, role of other major powers, and particularly in this case, China is also important here. China's uh, been working on China-Myanmar economic corridor, the BRI uh, investments are also going on, and Rakhine State is one of the areas uh, which has been uh, directly involved in it. China is involved in drivers of growth, but fails to address any human rights violation issues. Uh, recently, Tatmadaw General, the chief of army staff of Tatmadaw actually, uh, came up with this uh, statement that China is uh, backing some of these rebel groups because they are not happy with the way Myanmar government is working with them on the BRI. Well, these reports or these accusations are not confirmed, but it is clear that China has no interest in, in uh, safeguarding human rights in uh, their countries of investment. This actually is not part of checkbook diplomacy uh, of China and uh, its BRI investment. There are also reports that Sitwe project, which is between India and Myanmar, China has not been very happy with it. And uh, at least some argue that uh, uh, supporting these rebel groups is a part of that plan as well. So India-China rivalry also uh, is a factor in, uh, in the kind of Rohingya problem. If you look at the international regional responses, I think it is very clear that uh, International Court of Justice has taken up this matter very seriously. The role of major powers has also been uh, uh, important. Uh, if, uh, at least the US has played some uh, important role European Union has also been trying to, to bring uh, these issues, but it was more active when uh, the struggle for democracy was on. To my mind, ASEAN has been a total failure because ASEAN has not been able to, uh, to really do anything uh, with regard to the uh, Rohingya crisis. And I'll come to that part later. NGOs, human rights groups, and media, of course, they've been very vocal, very, uh, uh, they've been raising this matter over and again. Um, now, coming to the International Court of Justice, as I mentioned earlier, Gambia filed the case and asked Myanmar to stop all the steps within its power to prevent acts of genocide and um, uh, killings. Uh, Myanmar was asked to, has been asked to file a counter uh, um, statement in uh, 2021. Aung San Suu Kyi has been saying that these, the accusations are the this point that Rohingya have been uh, um, 
have been denied their rights and they've been killed is exaggerated and misconstrued. It is uh, out of malice and ignorance, and therefore these uh, they should not be accepted. Inquiry committees have been working on it, and I think uh, ICJ uh, remains the only hope uh, for the Rohingya people. The role of US is important. I think it was, uh, uh, like in the case of European Union, it was initially very uh, impactful, but the sanctions failed to yield any results even in the early 2000s because there were proxy networks in China and other spoilers, including uh, other countries. For example, Australia was also not following those sanctions very uh, strongly. Singapore was another country. Uh, I think Trump's apathy towards Myanmar and human rights issues in general played a, a big role there. These past four years have been uh, really difficult for Asia on a number of uh, non-traditional security issues. The question really is whether Biden administration would follow Obama's approach Obama, as we know, and Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, uh, both have been uh, were very active in Myanmar, and they've been very, very uh, supportive in bringing normalcy back in, in Myanmar. Uh, EU's role is also important because EU investments are pretty heavy in Myanmar, and I think uh, perhaps this policy of EBA, everything but but arms policy that is being implemented with Cambodia could perhaps be replicated there. China and India both are very important, perhaps two most important regional players, but both of them have not done enough. And I think that has uh, come as a disappointment for everybody. Uh, the role of international community, I think I'd skip this because I, I guess I'm running short of time. Uh, now the question really is whether the responsibility to protect principle, R2P principle can be applied in this context. Uh, if you look at the three pillars of responsibility, of a state, the state has, a has the responsibility to protect its population from four mass atrocity crimes, genocide, war crime, crime against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. Second, the wider international community has the responsibility to encourage and assist individuals in meeting those responsibility. And third, if a state is manifestly failing to protect its population, the international community must be prepared to take appropriate collective action in timely and decisive manner in accordance with the UN Charter. I think if you look at these three pillars, it becomes very clear that international community and the United Nations have got a responsibility here and they have to meet this responsibility. They have to do uh, much more than what they've, what they've been doing. Uh, the responsibility also lies with the five uh, members of the UN Security Council and one, one does why there is no consensus in, uh, in meeting those uh, uh, goals. Now coming to role of ASEAN, uh, ASEAN, as I mentioned earlier, it's been a total disaster in when it comes to the Rohingya crisis, there has been no collective response to stop the genocide and prevent crisis migration. Indonesia and Malaysia have been raising concerns, but then you've got Rodrigo Duterte, the Filipino leader who has been uh, Sorry, uh, sorry, we may have to um, to wrap up so that we've got time for questions. Um, if you can yeah, just sure. conclude, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, in a minute, yes. So all these, uh, uh, over the past five years, I think uh, the way ASEAN meetings and ASEAN uh, uh, stand on Rohingya crisis has emerged, it becomes very clear that ASEAN mechanism is flawed, no sanction, no punitive action. 
uh, tells us very clearly that ASEAN has not been able to live up to expectations. Uh, I think uh, the most important issue here is that there is a lack of effective global mechanism in dealing with uh, issues of uh, human rights violations and genocide within a country. Sanctions uh, in this case, in the Myanmar case, have not worked, but elsewhere also they have not worked. Uh, ICJ, as I had mentioned earlier, is the only hope house or, or oblique. Regional responses have not been uh, very good. ASEAN, for instance, in the name of non-intervention, uh, has actually not done anything to protect these people. And uh, non-interference in Myanmar's domestic affairs cannot be the ground for, uh, for not protecting the human rights of uh, common people of Myanmar, the minorities of Myanmar. And in that context, I think uh, the role of international civil society also becomes important in protecting the Rohingya minorities. Uh, I'm running really short of time, so I'll stop there and welcome questions and comments. Thank you so much. Um, it's uh, I, I felt terrible cutting you off because this is such important work and um, I really appreciated you giving such a clear overview. Um, this is um, uh, such a pressing issue of our time. We've had some questions coming already on the Q&A. Um, I'd invite the audience to put any questions they may have in there. Um, I'll kick us off. We've had a couple of um, uh, perhaps quite um, back to basics questions just to make sure everyone's very clear on, on some of the background to this. Um, so Eric Convoy uh, wants to know um, the reason why um, uh, Myanmar is now referred to as Myanmar rather than Burma as it was previously um, and he also asked a question about um, Buddhism. We um, uh, perhaps traditionally have seen Buddhism as a, a, a peace-loving religion and whilst it would be a cliche to assume that it cannot be capable of violence I wonder if there's any way in which um, the Burmese government or the army has tried to square its um, its chauvinism with um, the the um, purported peacefulness of uh, Buddhism. So I wonder if we could start there, please, Dr. Mishra. Oh, um, you'll just need to unmute if you could, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, the first question, as I understood, was uh, why uh, Myanmar and not Burma, right? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, that, was, that happened because uh, uh, the Burmese junta wanted to come up with something new. They wanted to, they were under a lot of pressure under the, uh, in the 1990s, uh, uh, the international community, uh, the US and Europe were putting a lot of pressure on uh, uh, the Burmese junta, military junta, and they uh, came up with this new idea that Myanmar is, uh, is changing and new Myanmar is, is coming up and they changed the name. There was no other logic behind that. Uh, your second question was, uh, uh, that Buddhism in, as a religion is very peaceful uh, and yet things are happening in, in Myanmar. I think the Myanmar example, Myanmar case is different. Uh, in, in the neighborhood, uh, look at uh, uh, Thailand, for example. Uh, situation in Thailand is, uh, is very good. The civil, uh, the overall social fabric is uh, very well knit. And Buddhism actually plays a role in bringing people together. What has happened in, in case of Myanmar is first, they've been isolated for long, controlled by the military junta. And the only uh, factor that bound, that 
actually uh, brought them together uh, is uh, their religious identity. Bomber majoritarianism is, is something that has been a prevalent factor, an important factor uh, from 1940s onwards. So I think it has more to do with Bomber uh, idea of Buddhism than uh, Buddhism itself. Yeah, um, thank you. We've got a number of questions coming in about um, the international situation. So I hope um, Eric Conroy was um, was pleased to get those explanations from you in response to his questions. Um, um, Ian Attack asks um, uh, about any the existence of any contacts between Buddhist chauvinists, in his words, um, between Myanmar and Sri Lanka. Um, and I was also wondering about um, India in this context. I, I, it looked like there was a surprisingly large number of Rohingya migrants um, uh, fleeing to India. Was it 40,000? Um, and given Modi's Hindu um, chauvinism and, and anti-Islamic stance, I was wondering if um, if that's given any legitimacy to, to what the Burmese um, uh, are doing to the Rohingya. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those, um, those issues, please. Yes, sure. There is a very strong linkage between uh, uh, the Buddhist, uh, Theravada Buddhist in Myanmar and those in Sri Lanka. Uh, Virathu is actually uh, quite a popular figure in Sri Lanka as well. So those networks are working fine. Uh, with regard to India, uh, if you go to northeastern uh, parts of the country, northeastern states uh, in India, there is almost a consensus that uh, Rohingya refugee uh, problem is really big. It has really turned into a humanitarian crisis for local people. Uh, considering India's limited resources and northeastern state, the eight northeastern states already marginalized lack of resources, that has uh, uh, created a lot of tension in the society. So uh, local support to NRC, the National uh, Register of Surgeonship, uh, was very much there. What happened was uh, Modi came up with this idea of CAA and that uh, uh, really rocketed the boat. So uh, the political agenda apart, Northeastern states uh, for local people, this has been a challenge. And uh, all they want is that citizen should be our citizen uh, identity card or uh, citizenship cards should be uh, uh, segregated from uh, uh, from other types of identification and there should be a very strong uh, uh, mechanism to make sure that uh, uh, refugees are not uh, getting those cards they don't become citizens so uh, i thought those uh, concerns are valid Thank you. Um, uh, Christopher Boucher asks about um, the EU response. Um, you mentioned um, we'd like to know um, how you assess that um, impact uh, from the EU. Would greater economic and political engagement, he asked, provide a stronger platform to promote progress on the Rohingya crisis? Um, and um, similarly, Christine O'Neill asks what you think of the UN Special Envoy to Myanmar, Christine Schrana Bergener. Um, and, and the impact that she has been able to have? Well, I think uh, a greater uh, economic engagement uh, uh, between the EU and Myanmar would certainly uh, be helpful. And in that context, I think the EBA could be a good policy, uh, the policy of everything but arms. 
so more linkages and and once you establish those greater trade investment and line of credit uh, sort of uh, linkages that would at a later stage also help you with the with the stronger uh, uh, negotiations and make sure that uh, Myanmar complies uh, with the international norms and conditions that are set. Uh, UN's special envoy to Myanmar, how shall I answer that? I mean, <laughs> uh, well, the uh, first thing is, how much have you done? Uh, for example, the, the recent elections, uh, November 2020 elections, I was really, I was running short of time, so I did not focus much on that. But I thought that uh, the 2020 elections were a great opportunity to make sure that even if there are problems, other problems, at least these uh, the Rohingya people are given an opportunity to vote. You know, their citizenship rights are not snatched away. Uh, that is the basic minimum that we could have perhaps, you know, uh, uh, forced uh, Aung San Suu Kyi to do, because uh, political rights, civil rights, and uh, and and uh, the right to vote is a part of democratic process. Aung San Suu Kyi uh, uh, garnered all the international support and funding and whatnot because she was fighting for democracy in the country. So 2020 certainly is a missed opportunity for the international community, and I don't think. Uh, uh, we should leave anybody out. Uh, everybody has a, a responsibility there to share. We all failed uh, Rohingya community in Myanmar and uh, uh, we could have done quite a lot just before the election because that was a key highlight uh, for uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. And this is something that uh, with Ireland's new um, seat on the UN Security Council that we uh, have an opportunity to try and push for, um, for more action there. Um, uh, perhaps a, a final question um, then from Brian McCrowan, who asks um, if you could expand on the flow of arms um, to the Rohingya insurgency groups um, that you mentioned near the end there. That was something I certainly didn't know anything about. Um, it, could you tell us a little bit more, please? Actually, there are no verifiable reports. The uh, chief of army staff, the head of the Tatmadaw, uh, came up with a statement uh, stating that China has been... Um, uh, providing arms and ammunition to uh, some of the uh, Arakan Rohingya uh, rebel groups. And uh, there are certain uh, media reports, but we, as researchers, we cannot really rely much on that. These are speculations, and we have to perhaps wait for more verifiable information. And I think uh, unless the uh, rebel groups also come up uh, and disclose their sources, uh, we've got to wait and uh, see how things unfold. Uh, so far, it is just Tatmada which has been accusing. They've they've been actually using that uh, those uh, couple of attacks, half a dozen, let's say, attacks initially in 2017, and recent uh, uh, arms purchase, etc., as reasons to uh, reasons for this all this genocide and atrocities against common civilians. So non-combatants are actually getting affected in this. Uh, so I think on that ground also, we cannot really rely on Tatmadaw's statements. It's, it's, um, it's difficult, isn't it, to um, get a really clear handle on, on some aspects of this and then other 
you, know, you can see the sheer numbers of the refugees. There's some things that are, are so frightfully clear. Um, uh, well, well, we'll draw things to a close there. We've we've gone uh, just over the hour, but hopefully that's um, that's been all right. Feel to squeeze into their lunch times. Thank you so much, Dr. Mishra, for joining us. Um, I certainly learned a great deal. Um, thank you to our audience um, for coming along, sparing your time, um, and for your questions. It's been nice seeing um, some former students, uh, graduates from the. Um, and fill in Chinese studies come along. Um, we do have um, another event. We'd be um, uh, pleased to extend a warm welcome to you. Um, next week, the uh, Trinity um, Long Room Hub is hosting the launch of Bill Emmett's book, uh, Japan's Far More Female Future, Increasing Gender Equality and Reducing Workplace Insecurity Will Make Japan Stronger. Um, and there's an exciting panel of speakers to launch the book. Um, that is next Tuesday evening, the 1st of December, uh, 7 uh, p.m. And you can register online. Um, both the Hub's website and uh, the Center of Asian Studies um, events page have uh, details for how you can register. Um, you might also want to look at our events page um, to uh, see what else we have coming up next term and to receive email notifications for all of our events. Um, but it only remains for me to um, extend a final thank you to our speaker um, and um, uh, enjoy the weekend, everybody. Thank you. The Hub Bye -bye. is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.